I want to thank God for another opportunity we've gotten to hear from the Word of God. Um, and as you might have uh, predicted, I'm still continuing with the series in Revelation. Um, and today we, are, we shall continue with our series on Christ, Christ's message to the church by looking at the church in Pergamum. So before we do that, um, let's refresh our memories so that we may have an understanding of the direction that we are going. Thus far in our series, God has been equipping us as a church by the exhortations and reproofs that come from this message in Revelation that we may be able to live for his glory even in these times where Satan is trying by all means possible to bring down the church or bring the church to blaspheme against God. It's been his striving since the early church, even until today. Um, he's been trying to bring the church down. That's, he doesn't care about the people he's already won over. But because the church stands against what it stands for, because the church stands against evil, He's been trying to oppose the church. It's not a new thing. But our Lord, in his steadfast love, cannot allow that to happen because he is holding the church firmly in his hand that the gates of hell shall not prevail. This is what our Lord said to, to Apostle Peter, that you are the rock on which I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So no matter what the devil does, no matter what the devil tries to fire us as the church, our Lord will not allow it. This is a very comforting message to know that our strength as a church does not depend on us at all. But through the promises of God to the church, he will not allow his elect to fall away. He will not allow the enemy to prevail against the church. This is what Revelation is about, especially the chapters we've been reading, or the sections we've been reading so far. It's Christ giving a message to the church that the church may stand firmly in Christ and be equipped in order to, um, to, to, in order to defend itself from um, the dangers that it's facing or the opposition of the devil. So Christ gives this message to warn us, to alert us on what the devil is doing and is about to do. And he gives us a message and promises to hold on to while we endure until the end, when he comes again to judge evil and reward those who conquered. So when we begin this series, I'm just going to um, just jog our memories a little bit. When we began this series, we got to know clearly or to understand clearly the nature of our Lord as King and Lord of all, with authority over all that lives, the past, the present, and the future. And to Him was given all authority by the Father to rule and bring judgment on the earth. This is the Christ Jesus who suffered on the cross for the sin of the world and conquered the enemy, then went back to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high as the high priest and mediator between men and God. While seated at the right hand of God, he is praying for the church that it may remain stronger until the end. We see this um, in John chapter 17. When he says that, from verse 15, that I do not ask that you take them out of, the, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for this only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is the apostles' word. That they may be all that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be as one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So we see that that even in his prayer, Christ was thinking of the future church as well as what he said, as well and what he said for the current church also affects us as the future church and the church to come after us. So what we're seeing here, we see that Christ is praying, is high priestly prayer, offering prayer to God on behalf of his disciples. We are his disciples. And he prays for the, for the disciples in the, in the, in the current uh, time. And then he says, for the same prayer that he was giving, he says, I do not pray for these only, but for all those that shall believe from the word that the apostles will deliver. This is Christ praying for the church. And it shows us that Christ is so much concerned for the church. He loves the church. He is praying on our behalf, seated at the right hand of God on high, praying for us that we may be able to withstand the evils of this world. As he said that, I do not pray that they may, that you may take them out of this world, but I pray that they may be kept safe from the evil one, from the devil who is roaming to and fro on earth, trying to devour God's children. So out of concern and passion for the church, he gives this message in Revelation that the saints may be aware and equipped for the struggles of being a Christian. This is what this passage or the passages we've been reading are all about. Christ loves, Christ loves the church so much that he points out error in church and gives warning to the church that they may repent and be in the right standing with God. And that they may be aware of the things that are happening or the things that they are about to suffer or the craziness of this world. So the scope of our message today comes from Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. That's uh, the last two times we, 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 we were looking at Revelation, we dealt with the church in Ephesus. Um, the church in Ephesus, the church that had uh, abandoned the love they had at first. And Christ came with a warning saying, go back to the love that you had at first. And what you established from that is, they had abandoned the love they had. This is the love of God that they had abandoned. They started out hot and passionate for God and soon it faded away. And then we looked at the church in Smyrna, a church that had no rebuke only but um, exhortation, encouragement to remain faithful unto death. It was a church that was going under or going through persecution and Christ urged the church to remain faithful unto death and assured the church that he was with them, that he was going to be with them throughout. So, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, and see what the Lord has to say to the church. Verse 12. This is to the church in Pergamum. I'm reading from the ESV. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the reading of the word from Revelation chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 2, verse 12 to 17. So today we are looking at the church in Pergamum, but as we always do, we want to understand the nature of um, the, 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 or the setting of the church, mostly how it's affected by the city. So we are looking at what the city of Pergamum is like. So I always uh, get um, these descriptions from John MacArthur's study notes. They are very um, clear. So the word Pergamum, you might need to listen very carefully to understand what we're dealing with or what problems this church was going through. So the word Pergamum, according to MacArthur's study notes, literally means citadel. And it's the word from which we get parchment a writing material developed from animal skin, which apparently was first developed in that area. Okay? Something good about Pergamum. They had something. So, Pergamum, which is modern Bergama, was built on a thousand-foot hill in a broad, fertile plain about 20 miles inland from the Asian Sea, it had served as the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor for over 250 years. Now, it was an, it was an important religious center for the pagan cults of Athena, uh, Asclepius, Dionys, uh, Dionysius, or Bacchus, weird names. Uh, Bacchus was the god of drunkenness, and Zeus. So all these gods, they, they dominated this city of Pergamum. So it was the first city in Asia to build a temple to Caesar in 29 BC. We talked about, last time we talked about the, church, the, the, the city of Smyrna that they also uh, were worshipping the emperor. And this also was worshipping the emperor. And through that they were the first city to uh, for the first city in Asia to build a temple to Caesar or a temple that they would worship Caesar in and, the, and it became the capital of the cult of Caesar worship so it was the Jerusalem of Caesar worship when people they, they look at it they, they, they see it as the holy city where people go to worship Caesar and the temple where they go to worship the empire was in that city One common thing we noticed about the churches mentioned in Revelation was that they were established among the world's most pagan cities. Um, yeah, they were established in the most pagan cities and Christianity was very foreign and these Christians with were very likely to be in danger of persecution because of their strong beliefs in the word, in the one God of the Bible. Because when in a city where almost everyone is worshiping idols, and you go and you say, "All these you're worshiping are worthless idols. They don't bring anything. Actually, you are in sin against God. You are likely to offend someone." 
there's one one fact um okay <clears throat> all right um so it, it's something that we when we get to understand what was going on in Pergamum, we get to understand the, the situation of the church. That even in that church, Christ chose to build his church in that, in that, in that uh, city, that pagan city. So verse, eight, verse 13, um, verse 13, which says, That I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was killed among you where, where Satan dwells. This is not just... Um, it's not just... just to say where Satan dwells because, uh, you know, there's evil. Of course, there's evil everywhere. But when Christ says that Satan dwells in that city, he really is really there. So just as Christ began with words of exhortation to the church in Ephesus, he says, I know, I know your works, I know your patience. To Ephesus, he says, I know your works and I know your patient endurance. How you do not, um, how you, you, you against people who speak heresy. That's what Christ was saying. And the same thing to Pergamum, he says, um, I know your works. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast my name and you do not you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells this is a church that was standing strong in this city we're talking about this city that was uh, pagan one of the most pagan cities in Asia Minor that worshipped many gods worthless gods that worship Caesar. People were being killed for uh, denying to bow before Caesar. Um, so Christ gives this exhortation. He also begins by exhorting the church in Pergamum because uh, before he reveals their error. So the church in Pergamum, to the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The rate of paganism uh, in Pergamon confirms this city to be where Satan enthroned himself. He was in this city ruling. Also Christ himself knew that Satan had taken rule of this city and knew where he was ruling from. Remember, God is omniscient. He sees what's going on in the earth. He knows where Satan dwells, where he is controlling people from. And so this is a scary message to a Christian. Especially to a Christian in that time, to know that you are living close to your arch enemy. The arch enemy who has but one goal to turn people against God. What is Christ against mostly? He's against the church. He's against godly values. When uh, I mean uh, Satan is against godly values. If Satan is nearby, he is not caring about people who are getting drunk on a Sunday. He's not caring about people who are prostituting themselves every night. Those people is one over already. But he is there against people who trust in God. People worship all these other strange things, but God. Their hearts were far from God and devoted themselves to worthless idols. This is what human beings do. It's like God is here. They see that God is here. They avoid him by all means. They would rather worship this pulpit. They would rather worship this chair. They would rather worship their wives or their friends or their presidents or their leaders but God they are haters of God 
So clearly the devil had taken charge of this city. John MacArthur says that Pergamum had become the headquarters of satanic opposition and a gentle base for false religions. On the Acropolis in Pergamum was a huge throne-shaped altar to Zeus. In addition, Asclepius, the god of healing, was the god most associated with Pergamum. His snake-like form is still the medical symbol today. So when you see that symbol, medical symbol, you wonder where it came from, from Pergamum. The famous medical school connected to, to his temple mingled medicine with superstition. One prescription called for the worshipper to sleep on the floor, allowing snakes to crawl over his body and infuse him with, its, with their healing power. Imagine how weird this is. You go to, to, a, to, a, to a medical center, and because they're not giving you all your medicine, but they're so superstitious in the things they do, they tell you lie on the floor. They bring snacks so they can just crawl over you and then you'll be fine. This is very superstitious and mystical. So this is the strangeness of the city of Pergamon. They were worshipping Satan and came up with all sorts of strange practices. Christ not only does he know where Satan dwelt in this city, but he knew his church very well in this city. And he says, I know where you dwell. I also know where Satan's throne is. This is Christ. It's not like he is surprised that, oh, how is this church standing in this crisis? So, how Christ knows how this church remained faithful and did not recant even after all the pressure they might have endured from paganism and idol worship. Christ recognizes their faithfulness and encourages them in that way. Um, might be in a similar situation. Our country is not very godly. Um, Let's say, okay, let's look at an individual level. Let's say you are the only Christian in your family. Everyone else, they are into ATR, they do spirit mediums and stuff. Some do Mapostory, some are Pentecostal. They all have one thing in common. They are all superstitious in their way of life and stuff. And you are the only biblical or sound Christian in that family. Think of the amount of pressure you have. That is difficult. It's like you are one against a thousand. That's how it that's how it was like for the church in Pergamon. He might have felt kind of lonely being the only group that stands for the God of the Bible out of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are into pagan worship or idol worship. So verse 14 to 15. This is where Christ comes after exhorting the church. I know what, what, what you're doing, how you are, you, are, you, are, you are remaining faithful. How you did not deny my faith. How you did not um, recant. Then Christ, however, had something to correct about the church in Pergamum. Let's read verse 14 to 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual, sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So, uh, 14 to 15. Now Christ is dealing with an issue, or an endangering issue that was, um, that was there in, in Pergamum. Um, so he talks about Balaam, like there are some among you who hold the teachings of Balaam. If you have read from Numbers chapter 22 to 24, that's where the story of Balaam comes. I'll just narrate it. So what happened was Israel 
as they were marching from, from Egypt, going to Canaan. Sometimes they would camp, they would stop and camp at a certain place, and then they would carry on with their journey. So at this time, they, were, they had camped um, in Moab, in the plains of Moab, uh, beyond the Jordan. They were, uh, they were camping at Jericho on their way. But it happened that in that same area, there was the Moabites dwelling there. And when the king of the Moabites, whose name was Balak, when he noticed the multitudes of the Israelites dwelling there, he got scared. He was terrified. Even knowing all that they did on their way, he was very terrified looking at the number that these people were many. So he thought, what should I do? Or else I might, these people might just destroy us. What should I do? I should find a way. The only way you, you could fight against them is if the Israelites were weak. So he summons a man named uh, Balaam. He says, Balaam, can you curse these people for me so that I may be able to drive them out? So Balaam said, I can only do what the Lord tells me to do. And he went on, he went to, to pray about it, and um, the Lord told him that you cannot do it. And then the group went back, the group that was sent by Balak, and Balak sent another group that's bigger than this one. And he, they asked, asked the same thing. Can you curse Israel so that, that I may be able to drive it out? And he said, you can, you can sleep here tonight, uh, and I'll go to talk to the Lord, and whatever he says, I will, I will do. And God says, you will not do it. And then, um, and then he went with his people, but there's a time when God was angry with them. Well, he was angry with Balaam that he had. Uh, even God had said, you know, go with them. But the, the sin was not God. The issue was not because uh, God get, got angry because he went. But the, the, the issue was that his heart, it was in his heart that maybe God might change his mind. He thought God would change his mind. So he thought, let me just keep persisting. That's why he was almost killed. And his donkey, almost, his donkey talked. And the angel that was there said, if it wasn't for your donkey, I would have killed, I would have killed you. And he went on. Um, and then the king of, of Moab tried to convince him. And they built an altar. And on the altar they did sacrifices and... Uh, Balaam went to talk to God and God says, you will not. Instead, God put words in Balaam's mouth and he gave blessing to Israel instead of a curse. But in his heart, I think Balaam still thought that God would change his mind. He keep, kept on doing it, doing it over and over. Funny thing is, um, Numbers doesn't give us the full story, but Christ then gives us the full story in Revelation. What then happened? Because in, in Numbers, it would seem like um, he just finished what he did and he went his way. But the Bible says in Revelation that because of money, he was, um, he put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food, sacrifice idols, and practice sexual immorality. So, as Balaam was not successful in cursing Israel, he instead plotted to drive Israel into rebellion by making the Moabite women seduce the men of Israel, and they fell into adultery and worship Baal. So, basically, what he did was. He himself did not have the power to curse the Israelites. All that he could do, the evil thing that he could do, was to make Israel bring a curse upon itself. And he caused the, the, the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men so that they may fall into adultery. And through intermarriage, they started bringing in their gods 
And that was the birth of the Baal, uh, the worship of Baal. And in verse 15, um, Jesus says that, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So who is, who is this? Oh, who are these Nicolaitans? So the Nicolaitans here, um, so the, the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, according to John MacArthur, he says, this heresy was similar to the teaching of Balaam. Nicol- Nicholas means one who conquers the people. Irenaeus writes that Nicholas, who was made a deacon in Acts chapter 6, was a false believer who later became apostate. But because of his credentials, he was able to lead the church astray. He was a very prominent man. And he was respected. So because of that, he was able to lead people astray. And like Balaam, he led the people into immorality and wickedness. The Nicolaitans, followers of Nicholas, were involved in in immorality and assaulted the church with sensual temptations. Clement of Alexander says they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Their teaching perverted grace and replaced liberty with license. So basically, from what I've heard about the the story of the Nicolaitans, they were teaching that it's possible to have these indulgences or to practice some kind of debauchery by leaving it in your flesh that your, your spirit may not be affected. So it it was kind of like a separation of your flesh and your spirit. That you may, it's possible to sin in the flesh and still uh, have your your spirit uh, untainted. So this is what they were dealing with. This issue is not, we talked about the evils of the city. Now we're talking about the evils that were in the church that among them there were people who were bringing in these teachings. So this is, this is the, the, the title, this is where the title of our message comes, A Stumbling Church. So in application, allow me to read from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. Okay, um, the title of chapter 2 is False Prophets and Teachers. These are people that are in the church. I'll just read, let me read from verse 1 up to verse uh, verse 3, and then I'll jump to where we are. I just want us to get into context. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and men will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's talking about false teachers among the congregation. So from verse 10b, it says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble, as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So our scope is from verse 12. He says, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they, they are ignorant. 
will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin, they entire unsteady souls, they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beo, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression as speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This is what we are dealing in the church, We're talking about the big C, the church today. That's among the church, there are some who are holding these teachings. They are doing the work of the devil, trying to stumble the people or the children of God to fall into uh, immorality and, uh, and idolatry. It's a very concerning matter. We need to bear that in mind. So, here Peter is warning us against this heretical people who creep into the church. And I know at BRBC, most of us hate these false teachings. I think um, we are strong in that. But also we need to stand on God even for ourselves and refrain from false teaching. Because if we allow false teaching to penetrate into our hearts, it's not long until we start spreading false teachings ourselves. Let us be um, attentive. One thing about human beings is we cannot close our we cannot close our ears. We cannot say, ah, "Today my ears are um, they're out of bounds." Right? Wherever you are, you're always hearing things. But we should stand on God through the Word of God, because we are always hearing things, and we might slip into some falsehood if we are not very careful. And once we're in falsehood, it's not long until we start spreading falsehood. So this might, like I said, this might not be a case for BRBC, but it is good to be reminded so that we may remain steadfast in the good that we're doing already. Loving the unadulterated word of God and are always careful to not let false teaching into our fellowship. We do not want in our church, like just as um, Apostle Peter warns the church he was writing to, that there shall arise among you false teachers. And let's, let's be faithful in defending the word of God. So by words and deed, we should not promote or encourage idolatrous behaviors towards each other and lead each other astray. We should not be worshippers of money. Some churches do. Money is everything for the church. Self, we're talking of an autonomous society where it's just me, me, me. Someone once said that. Uh, now in the church or some churches or the Christian of today, there are three pronouns. Me, myself, and I. This is how people are living today. They glorify self. Say you are great. You are worth you are, you, you have you, you, you have the worth. You you are everything. And people are forgetting that they are nothing. They are sinful in the eyes of God. And they are worshippers of self. I should love myself. How can I love others if I don't love myself more? The three scriptures. Should not worship each other. Looking at each other and we, are, we adore each other like we are worshipping each other. It happens in some. We should not worship our family our spouses, our children, our political leaders, even our pastors, like other false churches do. 
the false churches who worship their pastors are like the word of the pastor or the prophet is authoritative. If they bring it above the word of God, you go to them and say, what does the Bible say? He says, but the prophet said this. But what does the Bible say? Nah, the prophet said that. They look at their prophets and they are like the role model. They want to be like their prophets. Idolatry in the church. And those false teachers are promoting it. They are putting themselves on a pedestal to be worshipped by the people, by the congregants. These are the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The, the, the teachings of Balaam. It's all about leading the people of God astray. So let us refrain from preaching the wrong gospel and presenting a wrong God who is not the God of the Bible. That is idolatry. Idolatry is not only worship a, uh, a sin object, but also idolatry is worshiping a made-up image. It's not, it's not on your wall, it's not on, on a pillar somewhere, it's not an, on an altar. But if in your mind you have a wrong idea of, a, a wrong idea of God, you are in idolatry. You're worshiping the wrong God. And we see it in the church today. It's very concerning. We worship the God of money. He's all about bringing you prosperity. That's idolatry. We worship a God of, of uh, long life. He gives us 120 years of life. That's idolatry. God is not like that. So most importantly, stay away from the Balaams of our time. False teachers we hold on to. We have to cast them far off if we know that we follow false teachers. It's, it's something that's difficult. Even for me, when I was to, uh, being saved, uh, when I was a very fresh Christian, you'd be like, ah, but this guy... His message is very sweet. I used to like listening to Miles Monroe because he sounded very wise. And for you to let him go, it's, it was difficult. I'm like, but this guy, you know, does it mean I have to let him, I have to stop listening to him? It's someone you've been listening to for, for most of your adult life. So it's difficult, but we have to, because these people are poisonous. This is, this is so serious in that John, Apostle John, in, in 2 John chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, he says that everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide on the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring, does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is how much God hates false teachers. That the children of God should not be in association with false teachers. They should stay far from you. Do not befriend them. Do not uh, greet them. Do not welcome them into your houses. Because by welcoming them, you might affirm or you might give them more of the energy to do what they do or to blaspheme God. So let us not promote sensuality by the way we present and conduct ourselves so that we may not be a stumbling block to each other and to those that are to be saved. So we should be careful to be keepers of each other. Let us not bring God's children to, to sensuality or give them up to sensuality. Let us not invite idolatry into the church. So this is what was going on in the church in Pergamum. And the teachings of Balaam and Nicholas achieved the same goal to lead God's people astray. That's what they were doing. Nicholas or the Nicolaitan teaching says uh, it, it's promoting license. Grace and liberty are being ignored. 
saying, you know, now that you are saved, you have you have a license already. You are you are not condemned anymore. Of course, the Bible says we've been justified, but they're using it as a license to sin, saying, "Whatever I do, I am saved already." This is leading people astray, taking people back to to oppression, taking people people back to Egypt. It's a dangerous doctrine. And Balaam putting stumbling blocks upon the children of Israel that they may fall into adultery, to sexual immorality and idolatry. Even as God had told Balaam to bless the children of Israel, he then instead just put a stumbling block. So we see this issue, this as an issue in the church today, people who have devoted themselves to pleasure in the church. This is so dangerous that a lot of churches these days, it's all about pleasure. Um, they forget about preaching the word of God. They forget about, the tr- about speaking the truth. They f- forget about worshiping God in the way he's supposed to be worshipped. Rather they say, you know, if church does not make you feel good, or if church is not enjoyable, then why are we coming to church? People are coming to church for pleasure, to just cheer themselves up. We have churches like that and people in the church who are devoted. We have devoted themselves to pleasure. They do shows in the church. There's some dancing in the church. Then there's some like a talent show in the church during the service. So Christ is warning churches like these to repent and forsake these teachings. He's saying, leave these teachings. Stay away from them. They are heretical. So verse 17. Verse 17. Christ then concludes... He then concludes by saying, He who has an ear. Oh, he said, Therefore repent from verse 16. He says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's a warning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. That no one knows except the one who receives it. So God warns us and says, repent today. So it's, I don't know how this message comes to you as an individual, as a believer. Like I said, if you're holding on to any false teacher that you listen to. Or if you are tolerating false teaching, I might be, if that might be, um, a culprit in that the Bible says that it tells us to repent just as Apostle John says that do not welcome them into your house or do not give them any greeting so we need to repent even in the way we conduct ourselves are we being a stumbling block to each other or to other Christians who are trying to, 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 to live a God glorifying life we need to repent Christianity is not about ourselves only. It's not to make sure that I'm good, but it affects other people around us. The way we think, the way we do things, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we dress up, what we say around each other. Is it us being keepers of each other or we are stumbling each other? Where the title of the message comes, a stumbling church. We should strive to not be a church that causes people to fall into sin. So God promises the one who conquers a reward. Though our motivation should not be the reward, but living for the glory of God. Let's strive to conquer this sin because the devil is 
going to and fro on the earth. And if we are not on guard, if we allow our church, if we allow our church to get into false teachings, or if we welcome false teachers into our church, or if we give them greetings, we are opening, we are giving an opportunity for the devil to get into our church. So you end up hearing, ah, this church went apostate. Uh, they just took a 360, now they are speaking of things that are unbiblical. Let us be on guard. So through this message, we see Christ's concern for the church, and because of his love for the church, he gives us this warning. It is a privilege to get this kind of warning from, from our Lord, that we should stand on guard and purge evil among ourselves. So if we, we are holding fast in doing what pleases God, this is to us if we are doing good in these areas, if we are making sure that we are not stumbling each other. If you are holding fast in doing what pleases God, let us remain like that. But if we fall short in these areas, it could be that we hold on to teachings like that of Balaam and Nicholas. We need to repent and believe in the unadulterated word of God. It's better to just look at the word of God as it is and read it as it is. Instead of going out to try to Oh, what does this person say about this? And even if we go out to look for information, we need to come back to the Word of God and see whether the Bible is agreeing or not. So, that's my conclusion. To say, let us remain steadfast in doing good. I always feel so um, motivated and inspired when I'm reading the Word of God, especially these texts that we've been reading, that it is not possible, it is not impossible for us to be looked upon by Christ and Christ seeing us as a church that's faithful. Like I said last time, that let us strive to be a church that's known for its faithfulness. And let us strive to be known as a church that does not tolerate false teaching. So that's my conclusion for the day. I just pray that this word may, may be impactful in our lives and may change the way we think. Amen.